Believe it or not, the most difficult message for me to prepare every year, bar none, without comparison, is the message for Resurrection Sunday. It's a struggle for me. I try to get it right every time, but um, there's just not a whole lot of new stuff I can tell you. There's no twists. Nothing has changed. There's no spoiler alerts. Um, We all know the story, whether you've been in church or never been in church. The story is Jesus was arrested, Jesus was killed, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose from the dead. And it's really all you need. It's, it's so simple, and yet there is a lot of complexity to this narrative that we call the resurrection. And I want to help you just for a few minutes this morning, kind of dive in, and I want you to see maybe a different side of the resurrection than you've seen before. Um, see, I believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus had a physical body, that physical body was killed, that physical body was buried in a tomb, and three days later that physical body came back to life through the power of God. And I believe that because men like Matthew believed it, Mark believed it, Luke believed it, John believed, Peter believed, James believed. Now, James got to the story a little bit late because James grew up in the same house that Jesus grew up in. They were brothers. And it wasn't until the resurrection that James believed that his brother was the Son of God. And finally, Paul believed. They not only believed that Jesus was physically raised from the dead, they were willing to give their lives for what they saw with their own eyes. They saw Jesus die and they saw him live again. So I want to give you what I'm going to call this morning the resurrection narrative, which does not begin at Holy Week like we might think it does. The resurrection narrative actually begins around 400 before Jesus, 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. It happens in the, in the nation of Israel, God's people. God's holy and chosen nation that he communicated with for hundreds of years through the prophets. He would send them a prophet, and the prophet would speak for God and tell the people what God was thinking and what God was doing and what God required. But about 400 years before Jesus, God stopped sending prophets, and for 400 years, God was silent. Can you imagine for generation after generation, the people of God did not hear from God. It wasn't that God was absent. He was just silent. And during that time, there was chaos in their country and some revolts happened and some really interesting historical things happened. But towards the end of that 400 years of silence, the Roman Empire rose to power and they marched on into what we would call Israel and they they owned all the land around the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, They were the dominant world power and it appeared to everyone that, that Rome would just be an eternal empire, an eternal kingdom. And that's what they said, and that's what many people believed. And then one day, towards the end of that 400 years, a really strange guy walked out of the wilderness. He smelled weird, and he dressed weird, and he looked weird, and he ate weird things. His name was John the Baptist. Of course, he was a Baptist. He's a weirdo. Uh, of course, we get that title. But, but John came on the scene... And he had two messages. Number one, get ready. John's message was, get ready, Israel. God is sending his Messiah. And the second message was, the way you get ready is repent. 
You stop what you're doing, you turn around and do the opposite, and you prepare your heart to see the Messiah. And John had a huge following. He had lots of disciples and lots of people who crowded to hear him speak and teach and watch him baptize. And the religious leaders of the day, even the, the regular people, they would ask John, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that God promised to send to Israel to deliver us, to set us free? Are you the Messiah? And John would say, no, I am not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And one day, a man named Jesus, John's cousin, shows up on the scene and begins to teach. He begins to, to perform miracles. He begins to love the marginalized of the society. He begins to accept those who had been rejected. And thousands and thousands of people are flocking to Jesus. He, he has crowds following him everywhere he goes. And for three years, he teaches, he preaches, he heals, he loves, he draws people to himself. And then one day, Jesus does something that's a game changer. It's toward the end of his three-year ministry. He gets word that a friend of his named Lazarus has died. And Jesus shows up, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, Lazarus wasn't just a normal guy. He was kind of a rich person. He was kind of a famous person. Everybody in the area knew who he was. And Lazarus wasn't just dead. He was really dead. He had been dead for four days. But Jesus spoke with just a few words, and Lazarus was raised back to life, and the religious leaders just got knocked off of their pedestals. It was so game-changing. So many people saw it happen, and the religious leaders began to panic. Um, in fact, John records for us this conversation uh, among the religious leaders right after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Um, they said, if we allow Jesus to go on like this, Soon everyone will believe him, and then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And so from that day on, they planned together to kill Jesus. And if you look at all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they kind of slow down at this point in the narrative, and they begin to record in great, deal, uh, great detail for us everything that happened from this moment till the end. Um, and I just have to tell you, that one of the reasons I believe that Jesus was physically raised from the dead because, is because if these men who were recording this narrative were making this story up, they did a terrible job. If they were making up this story, they included details that just shot their story down they included details that made them look really bad. They included details that would actually disprove in their culture what had happened. If they were making this up, they went about it in the worst possible way. If this was a made-up story, these men who recorded the narrative for us, they should have recorded for us some really courageous disciples. We should have seen the disciples stepping in and rising up and taking over the movement. We should have seen all of those Jesus followers just full of faith because Jesus, he predicted that this would happen. We should have seen his followers expecting a resurrection and looking forward to a resurrection. We should have seen faith-filled followers. We should have seen somebody in the group rising up to lead. Now that Jesus was gone, somebody should have stood up to lead the movement. But that's not at all what we see. What we see is the exact opposite. These men record for us in the Eastern narrative terrified dis disciples. They were scared to 
death. They were hiding. They were hiding from those that had killed Jesus because they didn't want to die either. They, what you see is insecure followers. Everybody had scattered. And what you see is all of these disciples who had just spent three years with Jesus, their main concern is their own safety and their own comfort. According to their very own accounts, their own words, every single disciple ran for their lives when Jesus was arrested. One of the disciples got caught by a temple guard by the, the scruff of his neck, basically, and he kind of wriggled out of that and ran away from the scene naked. The guy tore his clothes off, getting away. He was so afraid. It's in the Bible. You should check it out. Every single disciple ran for their lives. Only one of them, only one of those 12 disciples came to watch Jesus die. And none of them went to the funeral. Not one of those disciples went to the funeral. It's very interesting that the two men that actually buried Jesus, one was a closet Christian, a secret follower named Joseph, and the other was a Pharisee, a member of the group of people that had Jesus killed. His name was Nicodemus. And the fact that they were allowed to bury the body of Jesus was extremely unusual. If a person was crucified, they were crucified to make a point. They were crucified to be an example to everyone else. Don't do what this person did. And so usually a crucifixion victim was nailed to the cross and left on that cross for days, sometimes for weeks, until the, the message and the visual had sunk in deep, don't do what this person does, and they would peel that dead body off the cross, and they would take it in Jerusalem. They would take it to the Valley of Gehenna and dump the dead body in the city dump. It was very unusual for a crucifixion victim to be buried, and yet we see Nicodemus and Joseph asking the Romans for permission to bury Jesus, and they do, but none of those people who had followed Jesus, none of those disciples, none of those who were closest to Jesus was there. In a very real way, the enemies of Jesus had more confidence in the Jesus movement than the followers of Jesus did. The enemies of Jesus were scared that, that something else was going to happen. So here's what they did. They had a plan. So they went to the Romans and they said, we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone that he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. So Pilate replied, take guards, secure the tomb as best as you can. So they sealed the tomb and they posted guards to protect it. Now, for my money, stealing the body of Jesus made no sense. It was dangerous and it was pointless. Why would those men, those disciples who were too afraid to go to his death and too afraid to go to his funeral, why would they risk their lives to steal the body of a dead man whose death just disproved everything Jesus asked them to believe? When Jesus died in the minds of those disciples, everything he had asked them to believe also died with him. Think about it. Jesus said that hell itself could not stop him, and now he was dead. Jesus said that he was living water. Now he's dead. Jesus said that he was the bread of life. 
Now he's dead. Jesus said that he was the son of the living God. And now he's dead. Jesus said he was the resurrection and the life, and now he's dead. If Jesus couldn't stay alive to keep the movement alive, why would his disciples risk their lives to keep the movement alive if it was just a lie? If it was all made up, if, if, if there was a dead body and they had stolen the body, why? Why would they risk their lives for something that Jesus couldn't stay alive to fulfill? So at this point in the, in the resurrection narrative, here's what we have. We have nervous religious leaders. They're, they're afraid that these disciples are going to do something weird and convince people that Jesus was for real. We have terrified disciples who are hiding away, locked in seclusion, wanting no one to find them. We have despondent women. By the way, um, if this was a made-up story, the last people we should see included in the story are these women. We see women. The gospel records for us that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, that's no big deal for us, but in the first century, a woman could not serve as a witness in a trial. So if you were making this story up, the last person you would want to be the first witness would be a woman. And yet the Gospels record for us that it was women who saw Jesus raised from the dead first. But before that, we have nervous religious leaders, terrified disciples, despondent women, and confused soldiers. Nobody had ever been posted guard at a tomb before because dead people stay dead until Jesus comes along. And what we don't have at this point in the resurrection narrative is anyone anticipating a resurrection. We have religious leaders anticipating somebody's going to steal the body. We have disciples anticipating somebody's going to come for them too and kill them. But nobody is anticipating a resurrection. Nobody was in the graveyard on Sunday morning as the sun was coming up going, ten, nine, here he comes, guys, eight. Nobody. The graveyard was empty. No one was expecting a resurrection. And yet, here we are. Here we are. Here, there you are, sitting in your home or your car or your RV or wherever you are, maybe at a block party. Here we are, 2,000 years later, doing everything we can to worship and celebrate this Savior, Messiah, Jesus who rose from the dead. They weren't expecting that, but here we are. And we are not here worshiping because someone gave a series of lectures. There were thousands of people who taught good things. We are not here because someone lived a good life. Lots of people live good lives. We are not here because someone died on a cross. Thousands of people were crucified on crosses. And we are certainly not here because someone stole a dead body. We are here because there is an empty grave. Ain't no grave can keep our Savior down. We are here because 2,000 years ago, some women went to the tomb of Jesus to prepare his body for final burial. They went to the tomb carrying spices, 
and oils and linens so that they could prepare the body of Christ. They did not go with lilies and Easter baskets and in anticipation of seeing a risen Savior. They went to the tomb anticipating a dead body. When they got there, they found nobody, and that was not what they were expecting. They found an empty grave. And 2,000 years ago, that empty grave changed everything. That empty grave changed a group of terrified disciples into a force, a movement of men and women who were willing to die for their faith because of what they saw with their eyes. They saw their Savior dead and buried and yet living again. And then 22 years later, 22 years later, a man named Paul who hated the Jesus movement, who hated Christians, and yet became one. He records this for his friends in the church in Corinth. He says, now, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never and you never believed it, in the first place, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Here's what's most important according to Paul. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the disciples. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at the same time, most of whom are still alive. This is while Paul was writing, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, his brother, and later by all the apostles. And then Paul wraps it up with this, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw Jesus. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us in 2020 in Artesia, America, or wherever you are watching this? What does this mean for us? It means the same thing it has always meant. Death loses. Death has no more power. It means love wins. Love is the way of the follower of Christ, and love is victorious. It means our Savior is alive. We serve we follow, we worship today a risen Savior. It also means that there is power to overcome every crisis. Whatever your crisis is called, there is power to overcome it. If our God can overcome the grave, he can overcome your crisis. It means we are never alone. We might be sequestered and we might be quarantined, but we are not alone. Jesus is with us. And it means there is hope in every dark valley. Every valley you walk through, there is hope and there is light because it is Jesus who lives in us. If you're a Christian, it means that your faith is not in vain. It means if you're a Christian, every time you've served, every time you've given, every time you've volunteered, every time you've done some missions activity. It means you weren't just playing a game. It means you were serving and doing that for a risen Savior. It was real. 
If you're not a Christian, if you're just curious, if you're tuning in today and you're seeking, you're wondering what all this means, it means your curiosity and your search is not in vain. It means if you will seek truth, that your search will always end at an empty tomb. It will end at an empty grave where Jesus um, overcame death, overcame sin, and brought life into the world. The search for truth ends at a man named Jesus who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then pulled it off. I'm with him. How about you? My prayer this Resurrection Sunday is that wherever you are and whatever you are facing, you would find hope and you would find power and you would find life because that is what Jesus, our risen Savior, offers you today. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you that you are not a dead God, that you are alive and that your life gives me life, that your life gives me power, that your life gives me hope. I pray for everyone who's watching this that we would find what we're looking for, that we would find the truth of your resurrection and your life, and it would change us the way it changed those men in the first century, that it would change our world the way it changed the world of those people who saw you with their own eyes. May we live as people with hope and power who serve a, living, a risen Savior. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.